Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. You know, talking with people in the food world, nationally and local food world, this past year has been pretty enlightening and fun. And since it's a fun drive week and we'll be asking for your support, we thought it was a good time to remind you why public radio and Seasoned in particular is so special. Ahead on Seasoned, some of our all-time favorite interviews to date. You'll hear selections from our conversations with Ina Garten, Marcus Samuelson, and Connecticut's own Chrissy Tracy, and pizza historian Colin Kaplan. Plum, how fun was Ina Garten? I have interviewed so many people and been fortunate to interview so many people that I'm so proud of. I got to tell you, Ina was the first time I was nervous to talk to her. She's an icon. (laughs) I was nervous. Could you tell? I couldn't tell, but I was so pleasantly surprised because she is exactly who she is, which is to say the person who I watch on television, that's exactly who we got. It wasn't like, yes, this is uh, how I've worked so hard on this recipe. This is how we do it. She's mm-hmm. like, just try it. See what yeah. you think. Love to hear your thoughts. And I love that whole mentality of it. I mean, pff, icon, national treasure. Icon, national treasure. Write your congressperson. Tell him or her to elect her to office. I love how she makes the recipes seem easy. She puts so much thought into them, you know, but they seem easy for people. Just her whole just try it mentality. I keep saying it over and over again. I was so nervous talking to her. <laughs> Just before Christmas last year, we talked to Ina Garden about her brand new book, Modern Comfort Food. So good to see you or to talk to you. (laughs) I know. These are crazy times. I feel like the last time I saw you in this sort of setting, you were making a cosmopolitan the size of my 11-year-old son. (laughs) So thank you for that. (laughs) It turned out I didn't know this, that everybody needed that cosmopolitan at that moment. We were dealing with the lockdown, not really understanding, could we go shopping? Could we see people? What was going to happen here? And I just, I don't know, I was going to make a Cosmo and I thought, oh, I'm going to put in this glass. Yes. <laughs> Little did I know how many people wanted that glass with a yeah, Cosmo in it. <laughs> myself included. Thank you for that, because that was exactly the Zephyr we needed at the very beginning of lockdown and the pandemic. So, um, Exactly. Which kind of leads me to the title of your of your latest cookbook, modern comfort food. Did you have any idea when you put these recipes together that we would all be yearning for comfort food? I did know one thing. I knew it was coming out a month before the election, and I knew we were going to be completely stressed out. I didn't know we would be in our houses, not being able to go anywhere except the grocery store. So everybody was cooking. I really couldn't imagine. And the layers of anxiety that we feel from everything that's going on in politics and the Supreme Court and the and racial justice issues. And I mean, the layers of, of stress are just extraordinary. Yeah. So I couldn't have predicted that. <laughs> I would say you did and just run with that. Add that to your, <laughs> add that to your CV. That's Predict, my story. Yes. Yeah. Predictor of strange occurrences in modern history. So talk to us about this book. It's beautiful. Thank you. Can you even believe that you've done 12 cookbooks? Isn't that crazy? Yes. And I remember after my first book was published in 1999, and it was about my specialty food store. So I thought, well, that's great. That's all the recipes that I have, and I'm done. 
And my publisher called me and he said, we need another book right away. I was like, I'm out of recipes. There's no possibility I can write another book. And he said, we need it now. (laughs) I was like, okay, maybe I could write a book about with my catering recipes. If somebody had said that after 12 books, and I'm now working on the 13th, I could sit down and write a list of 75 or 100 ideas for recipes. I just wouldn't have believed it. But I guess it's kind of like exercise. The more you do it, the better you are at it. Mm -hmm. It's been pretty amazing. Marisol, I have to apologize. I'm totally fanboying out again. Like I'm quiet. Like my heart's <laughs> pounding. Like I'm sitting here looking at an icon talking to me about food and, and That's so my mind is going you. blank. <laughs> uh, you know, I know, one of the things I find most amazing, whether it's watching you on TV or checking out these amazing cookbooks, the way you have the recipe in your head is mind numbing to me. Like the way you keep all of that in your brain, your brain just must be one big encyclopedia of all your cookbooks. <laughs> I'll let you, you in can't... on the dirty little secret. <laughs> Please. I can't possibly know a thousand recipes. I barely remember what book it's in, let alone how many cups of olive oil are in the recipe. But before I start to do a recipe on TV, I re- refresh my memory about the recipe. And I turn to my director and I say, there's no way I'm going to remember all of these ingredients. And she said, you always do. And she said, we'll just start and see how you go. And then I run right through the entire recipe. <laughs> and she said, see, I told you. I'm like, well, that was unusual. <laughs> no. I do it. I've been doing this for almost 20 years. Every single recipe, I say the same thing to her. <laughs> well, to me, as someone who I, I'm not a trained chef, but I can tell you in complete honesty that... I learned how to cook reading your books. Every year I've asked for a cookbook from you. Thank you. Uh, My boyfriend is like, okay, the shelf is about to collapse. Do we have to get the new one? I'm like, of course we have to get the new one. Don't be ridiculous. But what was interesting to me as I was reading about you is that you actually find cooking difficult. Is that accurate? Totally accurate. You know, I'm not a trained professional chef. I never worked on a line. When you work on a line and you grill something over and over and over again, you can touch it. You know the way they say, oh, touch it. It feels like the inside of your thumb. I don't know what that means. (laughs) Or season to taste. What does that mean? I have no idea. So I'm really specific about things. And I also know that if it's complicated or hard to find the ingredients, I'm not going to make it because it's hard for me. In the beginning, I remember thinking, why would somebody want to cook for me? Because I'm really not a trained professional chef. But in fact, I think it's worked to my advantage because that's exactly it. I'm not a trained professional chef. I'm just a good home cook. Maybe I've had more experience than you have, but my experience is the same. Yeah, but I mean, you did run a very popular specialty food store. So I think you got but some I didn't professional cook work in there. It. You didn't at all, huh? Well, I mean, I did. I would develop recipes and I'd hand it to the chef, yeah. but I didn't, I didn't actually work in the kitchen all the time. If the baker was sick, I'd get a call at three in the morning and say, you have to come in and make a thousand baguettes. Oh boy. And I could do it, <laughs> but I didn't want to do it the second day. Right. You weren't happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> and it's hard. Working in a kitchen's really hard. Oh yeah. And it's that repetition that really kind of, I know how to do everybody's job as well as they did, but I liked doing things that other people couldn't do. Business plans and how to develop new recipes you know, one of the things I loved about this book, uh, Marisol, I think you saw it too, is when you first thumb through the first couple of pages, it's something you bring up that I don't think enough people talk about. And it's just having good ingredients and talking about what good ingredients are. And I think it's very helpful probably to a home cook to have something like that in there. Well, one of the things I do regularly is I get like six olive oils and I just taste them all at one time. I'm going to use all the olive oils, but at least I know next time I need olive oil, there's one that's the best one for me. And olive oil has huge variation in flavor, you know, so some are kind of musky and some are kind of sweet and and fruity. 
I'll choose the one. In fact, recently we had a, I mean, it was a tough day at the office, but we did it. We had a chocolate tasting. Oh, because forever, Poor thing. Oh, I know, <laughs> I know. I know you feel sorry for me, but what can I tell you? <laughs> I had been using lid semi-sweet chocolate for a long mm-hmm. time, actually bittersweet. And I just thought, you know, maybe my taste has changed over the past 10 years. I'm just going to go out and get Valrona and Calibo and yeah. Lint and Ghirardelli, you know, just get a range of chocolates and taste them all. So we had a blind taste testing. And my assistants and I all liked the same one. And it was Lint. Wow. So it just confirmed that we've been using the one that we really like. That's so great. that's why that's why I recommend it. And sometimes a good ingredient is Hellman's mayonnaise. Mm-hmm doesn't have to be something really expensive. It just has to be what I think is the best in this category. And of course, you know, if it's too expensive, buy something that's the best quality that you can afford. I love that I've been invited into your pantry. You've showed me your mixing bowls, your glass ones, your metal ones, your rolling pins, your sheet pans, your KitchenAid, the whole thing. So thank you for doing that public service. And I try never to have something that everybody can't buy, either at a hardware store, a cookware store, Williams-Sonoma, Silatabla, something like that. I mean, I'd love to have a you know, like a wood-burning pizza oven in the backyard, but I just know that I'll never be able to use it for a book. So why bother? Plum has one, so you can go borrow his. Oh, really? <laughs> I would love to make you pizza. Oh, good. I'll be right there. <laughs> I, know, I think that what's interesting when you talk about these things, about having items and things that make your food taste better, really are approachable by so many people. And I think when people watch you, we look at you and we say, I know that person. She is my friend. She is my cousin, my sister, my aunt, my mother. What do you go into every taping, what sort of sensibility do you go into it with? You know, because I can tell you I'm a broadcast journalist and people say, what are you thinking before you go on air? I'm thinking of nothing. I'm thinking, gosh, I hope I don't sneeze on live television. Or I hope, (laughs) I hope, you know, if teleprompter goes out, I know that I know this person and I will be able to ask him or her questions extemporaneously. But what are you thinking as you approach each episode, whether you're making that engagement chicken or you're making, you know, swordfish with that delicious Caesar salad dressing? What, what is going on in that noggin of yours? Sheer terror. <laughs> it's, you know, when, when I first I started filming and I just, you know, I kept saying, no, I don't want to do this. Yeah. Lose my number. This is not interesting. I cannot believe that you turned down the Food Network executives. How many times was it before? I know. They, they said to me, people send us hams to try and get on the Food Network. <laughs> and you're trying to get off? <laughs> I mean, they're very sweet to me. So I had agreed to do 13 shows and I thought, okay, they'll find out that I'm terrible at this. I'll never be able to do it. And that was 2002. (laughs) After the first, we taped the first show and my production company is from England. They all live in London. They come twice a year and they sent the film back to London to have it edited and then sent it back while I was still filming so I could see it. And I remember thinking, no, it's not as bad as I feared. (laughs) I mean, it was obviously I didn't love it, but I mean, I didn't think it was terrible and um, which is probably my highest compliment. (laughs) (laughs) And and at some point I said to my director, you know, if it's not terrible in the beginning, it's going to be better as I go along. And she said, not necessarily. Mm -hmm. She said that it's kind of fear, that kind of anxiety about being on camera really makes you show up and the good news is I still feel the same thing I felt 18 years ago yeah. that I'm wow. just like, I'll never be able to do this recipe. <laughs> I won't remember it. I won't have something to say. It won't be good enough for me. And 
and that's the way we've been doing the show. <laughs> I love it. It's like still having butterflies when you see your lover. You yeah. still get a little nervous before you go to shoot something. Exactly. I know. So I got to ask you, when you're doing the book, Modern Comfort Food, I'm sure there's lots of these recipes that you've done on the show, of course, a million times, or different versions of the recipes. Are there anything in particular when you think comfort food that pops out to you? You know, I think like, you know, growing up, I think Brunswick stew, I think chili is like what things pop out to your brain when someone says comfort food? I think we all go back to what we remembered as kids, what we had. And to me, tomato soup and a grilled cheese sandwich feels like comfort food, chicken yeah. soup. I did a, a chicken pot pie soup in the in the book, those kinds of things. And I remember my grandparents lived in Brooklyn long before Brooklyn was cool. And um, <laughs> they would they would always buy me black and white cookies. So I thought I wanted to make really good black and white cookies, that kind of thing. While we're on the subject of my production company from London, I was working on this book and they were here. And I said, I'm you know, going to make something peanut butter and jelly sandwich kind of thing. And they said, oh, that's disgusting. Who would oh eat a peanut gosh. butter and jelly sandwich? What? Like, what did you used to eat when you came home from school? And they said, oh, we used to have like white bread with canned baked beans spooned onto them with craft <laughs> singles as a sandwich. No. I'm like, that's revolting. <laughs> oh my gosh. No. I said, no, 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 we'll make it for you. It's so good. And they made it for me. I took it back to my what we call the green room. <laughs> and I was like, there's no way I'm eating this. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds awful. Doesn't that sound awful? And that's what British kids eat for lunch. Oy. Wow. I guess we shouldn't hate on it until we try it, Manasal. I don't know. Mm, uh, it... Trust me. <laughs> stick to peanut butter <laughs> stick, and jelly. Stick to PB&J. <laughs> Well, we started yeah. this conversation talking about that giant cosmopolitan you made on Instagram. And honestly, I'm still, I'm on Amazon trying to find the glass just so I can make one myself. It's a vase, isn't it? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's probably. It, it's more, you know, I think drinks can also be comforting, mm. you know? I mean, especially for me as a chef, believe it or not, I like to have a beverage every now and then. <laughs> That's how I maintain my Adonis-like figure. Um, you have a hot spiced apple cider, which is just, when it's cold outside, you can't pick a better cocktail than this. It's really great. And what I do is I take good apple cider, you know, like from the apple orchard, or you can buy it in grocery stores now, and steep it with peppercorns and cloves and star anise and a, some orange peel and get all of those flavors into it and then pour it into a glass. Maybe if I feel like a little splash of bourbon in it, because that bourbon has like a really sort of a caramelly flavor that goes really well with apple. Beautiful. I kind of want that now. That sounds... <laughs> So delicious. See, I did remember that recipe. You see? <laughs> you have it in you. I know you have it in you. In fact, you'll love this because Faith Middleton interviewed me in Boston a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And she brought the books with her. And she had post-it notes on all of them. And I remember she said, you know what? I, I just decided instead of talking about your career, let's talk about recipes. Like, why did you choose the herb that you chose for the string beans with whatever it was? And I'm like... <laughs> oh my God, I'm going to have to remember what the herb was. And what popped into my mind is thyme. Oh, and I, I was it. like, well, I put thyme in there because of this and that. And I was like, phew, I got that recipe right. I know which herb you did not use. A cilantro. Cilantro. <laughs> <laughs> Guaranteed. For, for listeners, for those of you who don't know enough about Ina, if you're not part of her Facebook fan club, you know two things. One, she hates cilantro, but she loves 
Jeffrey, her husband. <laughs> Do you know that there's a, a group on Facebook of Barefoot Contessa fans? Oh, yes. And in order to get into the club, you have to pass those two tests? I keep getting rejected. It's fine. You keep, keep getting rejected? <laughs> I keep getting rejected. Why? You know, you're from Brooklyn. I'm from the Bronx. Maybe there's like a rivalry. I have no idea. <laughs> I am an intrepid journalist. Would I will you... <laughs> get to the bottom of this. <laughs> Maybe you need a sponsor. How about if I sponsor you? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's what's going to happen. <laughs> That's hilarious. You just heard the conversation we had last year with Ina Garden. Later in the hour, we'll share some of our interview with Connecticut chef Chrissy Tracy. She really inspires us. Plus, we revisit our conversation with New Haven pizza historian Colin Kaplan. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. I was particularly inspired by our time with Chef Marcus Samuelson and the respect that he has for food. It just oozes through in his conversation. And we're going to share some of that conversation after the break. You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We've recut some of our favorite interviews with guests to highlight what makes season so special. It often feels like a privilege to talk to the authors, home cooks, chefs, and farmers whose stories we get to share with you. Back in February, we spoke with Chef Marcus Samuelson about the book, The Rise, which celebrates black excellence in the food world. Marcus Samuelson, again, one of my favorites because I have interviewed him before, and to see that he is like, he's like a thoroughbred. He pushes ahead, not just with food, but lifting up his community. That was a highlight for me for this show. And he's so good at what he does, and he's so good at inspiring people, which is, I think, to me, what really stuck out about this interview is he's so inspiring, but I love how he wasn't afraid to say, he tells a story that he wasn't afraid to say he didn't know how to do something. He needed to learn more about that. Like, I really respect that as a chef. I think his respect just bleeds through when he talks. We see the Marcus Samuelson that we know and we love, who's this extraordinary chef, but here he is now on the heels of the Black Lives Matter movement, really uplifting his community. Yeah. And that conversation will last with me for forever. He takes the food so seriously, but he takes the message as serious as the food. Yeah. Just a tremendous amount of respect for this man. I really enjoyed this conversation. When you hit on words that people have heard on before, so much about Black Journey is, oh, I'm not sure. I haven't heard that term before. Whether it's from Africa straight, like, let's say, Berbere. But certain words are also common. And it comes out of the Black space and no one has a clue about it. So finding this balance between talking about barbecuing, talking about ribs, talking about igusi seeds out of Nigeria. And people are like, what should we call them? I said, we need to call them igusi seeds because what we learned about Japanese food, I'm so grateful for the journey of what we learned about nori and different soys. And we're learning about Korean food now, kimchi, kojujan, all of this stuff. And what we learned about French and Indian and so many other cultures. We need to do the same sort of uncomfortable journey but it can't just be done with brand new words to us. It has to be with some comfort. That's this balance, right? Again, it's like music. You bring people in with something that is more familiar. And then on the B side, you can really bring in your music, right? Like, or your rhythms or whatever that is. And it's the same thing with this book. It's a constant push and pull between West Africa and how much of that we can sort of sneak into the pantry. 
but also with comfort stuff that, oh yeah, I've had that dish before and I know how to make that. Because uh, otherwise I think we would lose the reader and the cook in the book. Looking at some of these recipes and as a chef for 25 years myself, one of the ones that really stood out to me, I said, what, what is that? Broken rice. Uh, there's a recipe. Mm-hmm. It's a golden coconut broken rice with a tamarind mm-hmm. glaze on the halibut. It just sounds absolutely outrageous. Yeah. I love it. Can you talk about broken rice yeah. to me a little bit? Our rice came here through West Africa to the Carolinas, and the broken rice was considered the bad rice, right? It was the broken rice that the slaves got. But their brilliance in cooking, that's really essentially when you think about grits and rice grits, right? So that broken rice becomes a little bit easier to chew and has a little bit different texture. So when you think about a grits, it eats like that. Or when you think about a version of a jambalaya, for example, that can eat a little muddier, a little grainier, but I love it. Out of the Carolinas in the low country, there's tons of broken rice and very often it's served as broken rice grits. Super easy to cook, delicious. And with this dish, we kind of want to add this tamarind glaze that gives you that sweet and sour, a little bit ginger soy into it. But the broken rice is really the, the key ingredient in that recipe. Where do you think people can get broken rice? Is it something we actually can buy? Sure. No, absolutely. Depending where you live, if you live in a bigger city, any West African market. So in New York, it would be come to the Bronx or come to Harlem. And sometimes you have to go this back backwards way of making it. You can also take beautiful long grain rice and crush it. Just crush it in the blender just to try that out because that's essentially what it was. It was the the rice that didn't make into these nice long grain baskets. And, and it was the leftover pieces of that. So absolutely. Wow. And when you think about it, broken rice, if let's say you make a rice salad, toast broken rice, now you get, and in the last 20 minutes, add a little bit of, let's say, brown sugar to it. Then you get that crunchiness that you get out of rice. You add that into, let's say, kale salad or something like that. Now you have a completely different eat on it. What I've been trying to add to my repertoire is injera. Nice. Am I pronouncing it correctly? Yeah, good job. Correctly? Beautiful. Because I, I decided, um, you know what? There's so many different flowers mm-hmm. ever. There's wheat flour. There's buckwheat. There's, mm-hmm. I bought garbanzo flour, mm-hmm. all sorts of And then I came across teff. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what in the wide world of sports is mm-hmm. teff? I keep coming up with these recipes for injera. Mm-hmm. So first of all, tell us what it is mm-hmm. and how that. can I make it and not screw it up? Well, first of all, I think it's great that you're interested in different flours, right? Because it's also a gluten-free flour. It, well, that, that was yeah. the impetus, yeah. Teff has been around probably... Since the time before three, time. Well, about, I want to say 3,500 years longer than America. So okay. it is one of the oldest grains in the world. Teff grows everywhere in Ethiopia. That's really a staple, right? It's literally what rice would be maybe in India or, you know, noodles in an Italian a part of the world. To make injera, you basically just take water and teff and you put it very often in a plastic bucket and you wrap it up and you let it sit overnight and then it's going to start to ferment. And when you come back to next day, you just add a little little bit more lukewarm water, you mix that up and you want the batter to look like a crepe batter. And then you take a nonstick pan on medium heat, put a little bit of oil into it and then you, you make it like a crepe, but you only cook it on one side, which means so... So it gets its bubbly side and you, you put a lid on it for maybe like three minutes or so. These sourdough, because that's what happens when you get a soured fermented pancakes. This is everything to Ethiopian culture. It's eaten dried when you need, kids need snacks coming back from school. It is a currency in a way. 
because it's the only thing you can count on that you always have. You have chickpea flour. You talked about that earlier that you boil with water. It's called shiro. And you have always injera at home. I'm going to tell my children that you said that when they look mm-hmm. at me with a side eye yes. <laughs> and say, but yes. Chef Marcus yes, yes. Samuelson yeah. said this yes. is currency. Yes. Thank you for that. But you come from the great eye. I mean, you have roots in from Puerto PR. Rico. Yeah. So, so we, we, we talked long and hard mm-hmm. about uh, Mangu and we talked mm-hmm. long and hard of, mm-hmm. or, you know, from Dominican and Puerto Rico and mm-hmm. we go away. Yes, and all that pernil and all of this stuff. So you come from a mm-hmm. great food culture. From good stock. Yes. yes. Thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> we also, you have um, a recipe for some croissants yes. of sorts. What is happening there? Walk us through that. Well, one of the opportunities here was to understand the complexity in our journeys, right? And I'm so excited that we have these massive opportunities to tell complex stories. And every time we can do it, we should. So now the world is learning that you can be both African-American and Asian-American. And oh, by the way, you're female and you're going to be the vice, you are the vice president of the United States, right? But that is an important thing. So when you talk about Eric, Eric, Chef Eric, who worked in some of the best restaurants in the world for 30, 40 years, talk about an anonymous journey and to visible. Eric happened to come from the French-speaking Caribbean. He worked in Paris. He married a woman that has Japanese background. So what's happening here? Whoa. He's Caribbean. So, of course, curries and Caribbean ingredients are right in front of him. But he spent a long time in France and making croissant. And he's also spent a long time in New York City. Wow. And his wife is Japanese. So for me, it's like, do not ever think you know a food or a person without spending some time with that person. So Eric represents these four channels of excellence that uh, we need to hear more mm. about. And another person that tells her story so greatly too is Naisha Arrington in the book. She happens to be from LA. Her grandmother was Korean. Her father's side is black. And she grew up in K-Town speaking Korean. And when you see her today, she's a black girl from LA. There's an amazing chef. So don't ever decide before you know this person who, what the narrative are, where they came from and how, how you got in front. It's just a privilege to meet other people, you know? I got to ask you mm-hmm. another question, another food question, chef. Tiger nuts, the new kale? What you learn in the book also is that there is very little new food. So when something like tiger nuts has been around forever, but when no one has a clue what it is here, bennet seeds, we talk a lot about these sesame seeds, the bennet seeds. We talk a lot about jollof rice, which is really the first jambalaya, for example. Fermented shrimp, fermenting Seafood is a concept that most culture has to deal with. This is an opportunity to get a lens that is wider than the narrow lens that we've been told. And I just think that's the opportunity. That's where we're like, hmm. Again, I go back to musicians, great musicians. They don't at all operate based on borders or any of that stuff. It's like, if you want that sound, you go to that person. It's funny you bring up musicians because I tell people when I do demos, I've been a guitar player my whole life. Yes. And I tell people when I do demos, you know, in front of the crowd or or even the small demos that we're doing now on Zoom, cooking food's like playing guitar. There's not a lot of notes you're going to play that haven't been played before. It's how you put them together. Yeah. And it's also, I don't think any of the demos you're going to do is going to be small. 
you probably transformed somebody that you had no clue you transformed because you took the time to creatively engage with them. So keep doing your demos, but don't call them small. I can't wait to go tell my wife that Marcus Samuelson just said any demos I do are not small. Oh, jeez. They're not because on the, <laughs> well, well, I did a demo at a school at Culinary Institute of America. And this young student asked me a question. You just taught us about Japanese food. You taught us about Swedish food. What about African food? And I had no clue. I realized that I have a lot of work left to do. I went back to Africa. I cooked. I learned. I studied. I did another book called The Soul of a New Cuisine. And the journey of Red Rooster would not have happened without these mm -hmm. questions. So the moment you're going to get transformed is not based on the crowd size. It's based on how it impacts you. We just did an interview, Chef, with uh, Hawa Hassan, and I had the same, at 25 years as a chef, mm. we were talking about African cuisine, and I realized, man, mm. I don't know a lot about this, and I need to know more. Mm. So I've been reading. Awesome. Yeah. You're doing the work. You're putting yourself in unfamiliar spaces, and maybe it's uncomfortable, but what a great, exciting journey you got in front of you. Like, that's it's awesome. so fun. So fun. Yeah. Food's so powerful, Chef. So powerful. That was Marcus Samuelson. We talked with him about his latest book, The Rise, Black Cooks and the Soul of American Food. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Marisol and I will share another favorite interview in just a few minutes. But right now you're going to hear from two of our favorite people, Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Talarski, our producers, about how you can support Season so we can keep bringing you the stories of beloved cookbook authors like Ina Garten and inspiring chefs like Marcus. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken with Katie Talarski. Aside from being favorites of Marisol and Plum, we are indeed the people behind the scenes who help bring you Seasoned. And it's always so much fun for us to have a part in planning the conversations you hear with people like Ina Garten and Marcus Samuelson. If you enjoy seeing or hearing a different side to the food stars you might know from TV like Ina and Marcus, please support Seasoned right now by jumping online wnpr.org slash donate is the website to go to, or maybe you're near the phone and it's simpler to dial 1-800-584-2788. That's fine too. We appreciate any donation you can make, however you can make it during this hour. That's right. 1-800-584-2788. Uh, or if you go to wnpr.org slash donate, you will see a very delectable treat. It's a Mother's Day treat. Gourmet chocolate dipped strawberries. I'm going to talk about this for a second, Robin, because they look delicious in the picture. There's obviously the flowers. Those are also beautiful. But the, well, I'm going to talk about the strawberries because, you know, this is a food show. We love food. So yep. for a gift of $12.50 a month, you can send your mom these gourmet chocolate dipped strawberries hand dipped in rich chocolate and beautifully decorated with crunchy bits of toffee, chocolate chips and chocolate drizzle. And you can put a nice note in there for your mom. If she's someone who loves public radio, uh, this would be a great way to uh, support Connecticut Public Radio and send your love to your mom on Mother's Day. So again, a dozen strawberries, four strawberries dipped in milk chocolatey confection with ground toffee, four strawberries dipped in. So I think some of them have white chocolate with chocolate chips. They're delicious. So take a look, wnpr.org slash donate. Whatever gets you to the phone, if you are loving uh, what the team here at Seasoned is doing, Marisol and Chef Plum, it's so much fun to work on this show and to get to learn about so many interesting food people and places around the state. So 1-800-584-2788 uh, or wnpr.org slash donate. 
There are many more favorite interviews we wanted to share, but there are only so many minutes in an hour. So I'll remind you of some interviews we hope you found inspiring this past year. We spoke to the author of Afro-Vegan and Vegetable Kingdom, Bryant Terry. We had a great conversation with him about the importance of local farmers. We spoke to Food Network star Manit Chahan about her experience eating the foods of India while traveling its railways. And we spoke to drinks writer Julia Bainbridge about all the delicious alcohol-free drinks you could make during dry January and all year long, really. If you appreciate conversations like these and recipes the authors we feature share, please support us now with your pledge. You can donate by visiting wnpr.org donate or by calling 1-800-584-2788. Giving online is simple and secure, and you can pick out a gift for yourself or someone else while you're there. That's right. 1-800-584-2788 is the number to call. So many thank you items on our webpage, wnpr.org slash donate. Seasoned is one of three new shows that we've launched in the past year, along with Disrupted, hosted by Kalila Brown-Dean, Quinnipiac University political science professor, and Audacious, hosted by our own Kion Wolf. So it's been a great experience of working with all of these three shows and bringing those out to our audiences. If you are appreciating this new programming on Connecticut Public Radio, please call us and support 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate. Please make your pledge right now. It lets us know that you value the stories you hear on Seasoned. Visit wnpr.org slash donate and become a sustaining member at 5 or 10 or $15 a month or whatever amount works for you. You can also call 1-800-584-2788 and make your pledge of support that way. Thank you so much. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. The most recent interview of The Bunch that we're still thinking about was our conversation with vegan chef Chrissy Tracy. The thing about Chrissy that really blew my mind, Manasal, was that I've never really perked up that much for vegan food. Usually I hear vegan food and I'm like, ah, I have incisors, give me meat. But I was really interested in her food and her Instagram is so beautiful. And who knew, by the way, that there was this little Jamaican enclave here in the fine state yeah. of Connecticut. She took all that stuff from her roots in Jamaica that her parents taught her brought them here. And she's also like smart, worldly, kind, humble, talented. Oh, you're talking about Chrissy. I thought you were running down my bio there. Sorry. And you know what's even better? She's from Connecticut. I love that. Chrissy Tracy, thank you so much for joining us on Seasoned. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm ecstatic that you guys invited me to be on the show. We talk about veganizing recipes. What does that mean? What that means to me is I might look at, for example, a chicken piccata recipe and I'm like, ooh, that looks good. What are the components of this? You've got your protein, the chicken, the base. You've got capers. You've got a cream sauce. How can I make this vegan? And so I'll just find the different substitutes that make up all the components of the dish and recreate it with my own spin. I've tried to be vegan. You have any idea how hard it is to be Puerto Rican and not eat pork? It's really hard. It's, 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 oh, same with Jamaican, because that's yeah. my, I'm, I'm Jamaican. They eat a lot of pork, a lot of fish, a lot of chicken, a lot of goat. Mm -hmm. Rice and peas, though. I was just going to ask you to tell us about your your upbringing. Yeah, so my, my parents moved to the States after they had my first 
sibling and we're pregnant with my second sibling. They moved here to afford us, you know, a better opportunities because Jamaica is a third world country, as beautiful as it is. They, you know, started out in Michigan, ended up settling in Cheshire, Connecticut. Yeah, they raised all seven kids on a vegetarian diet. My mom was a teacher and my dad was a stay-at-home dad slash pastor. So it's not like money was flowing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And they made it work. So the question I often get is, can a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet not only be sustainable to make you feel full, but can it be affordable? And I always say my family is a testament to the yes of that. It's a diet rich in grains and beans and legumes, veggies. And I think it's just determining, you know, with where you live, the best resources for finding the foods that are really going to provide you sustenance. How did you make the turn from being vegetarian to vegan? So about uh, five years ago, my parents went vegan. They are always studying health. And my mother and my father took that leap. And shortly after, they were like, Chrissy, you've got to do this. And I was like, "Mm, yeah, no, I like pizza too much. (laughs) And to this day, that is still my biggest craving because I have not perfected the vegan pizza yet. That's that's hard. That's hard. I will. I'm working working on my cheese trials, but you'll never get cheese out of no cheese. That's the fact. Truth. (laughs) Do you have a substitute for pizza? Um, I'm working on one. It's a cashew-based mozzarella. Okay. um, And it's pretty good. Are you sure? Because I'll be honest, you just said cat. I'm, I, you know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking of a, I'm thinking of a modern a pizza. I'm thinking of a of a Sally's a pizza, and then I think cashew mozzarella. It'll never be the same. Cashewella. Cashewella. <laughs> Matzo shoe. Cashewella. I'm trying to figure out what we call it. Yeah, Matzo shoe. <laughs> right. I don't know. The thing is, at the end of the day, and I think this is what sets my cooking aside, is that I've kind of stopped focusing on making things taste exactly like and focused on just making really great, delicious food. So I'll give you a slice of pizza. It'll be delicious. It's not going to taste like mozzarella per se, but you're going to like that mouthfeel and the, the flavors that are coming in to your mouth when you take a bite of that pizza or whatever the dish is that I create. You can get really close to the taste of Parmesan, though, when you're making the, I'm air quoting, nut cheese. You can get really close to it. You absolutely can. So, again, cashews, almonds. My go-tos for making nut-based Parmesan, you mix it with nutritional yeast and salt and a little garlic and onion powder, and it's very similar. It's pretty good. Yeah, it works out great. I don't know. I think it's awesome. Mm -hmm. What, if any kind of change, are you hoping to spark as a result of being a vegan chef in your community. And even beyond that, you have now a bigger community now that you have this platform of Bon Appetit. And then I'll also throw in, you're mm-hmm. also a black woman. So you're mm-hmm. a woman, you're black, you're vegan. That's like three yeah. trail trailblazing things right there. Yes. So the vegan transition started out as something I was trying for health and ended up sticking with. However, it's evolved into... I would consider myself an environmental vegan at this point. I care about the environment and sustainability and meat-based diets or the way that Americans especially consume meat is really bad for the environment. Um, Meat production accounts for almost 65% of all greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. And, And I'm not saying, you know, obviously I believe in the power of choice. So if it's not for you, it's not for you, right? The, the vegan diet. But I do think we can shift 
as a humanity to more of a plant-based diet, which just means limiting your meat intake, limiting your dairy intake, so that we drive that demand down. We can stop deforestation, stop you know water pollution and, and droughts that are occurring around the world. So there's a bigger thing to, to worry about, and that's not even just eat meat consumption, but also the choices you make when eating a vegan diet as well. Not everything is just about meat's impact on the environment. And even more so if you swap a beef burger out for like an impossible burger or a lentil-based burger, that makes a big difference right there because, mm-hmm. you know, livestock is actually the the bigger issue with environment and eating a meat-based diet in the first place. So I, my, my goal is to encourage people to swap out a meal, a meal or two with a, a vegan or vegetarian option. And if you want to indulge later, indulge. But limiting that intake ultimately will help to limit animal suffering, have a better impact on the environment. And at the end of the day, I just think being more cautious about where your food comes from and doing your research um, is the most important thing when it comes to eating. Chrissy Tracy is a chef and owner of Vegan Vibes Meal Prep Service based in Danbury. Last week, we received the sad news that Gary Bimonte, third-generation co-owner of Frank Pepe's Pizzeria, had died. We're going to celebrate Gary's life and his contribution to our local pizza community on our live show Thursday, April 29th, with our next guest. Colin Kaplan is a pizza historian, the author of the book Pizza in New Haven, and the producer of the documentary film Pizza, A Love Story. We spoke with Colin last October about New Haven's holy trinity, Sally's, Pepe's, and Modern. If I had one of those on any given day, Sally's Peppies are modern, in that order, I would be the happiest man alive. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good day right there. You got to have an amazing base. That's your crust, your sauce, and it's moots. It's not mozzarella, you know, so it's all these ways. Yeah, I mean, it's how you speak it. So if you go to a restaurant, you don't know how to order. You're in trouble, even the way you say pizza. Abits, abits. Exactly, right? it's abits. abits, and that's it. And it's an old language from an, a very old tradition that we've been carrying on for 150 years in New Haven. So, what makes New Haven style pizza uniquely New Haven? I usually describe the pizza as, and no one knows this term except for the pizza fanatics, but neo-Neapolitan style, which means specifically to New Haven, it's thin crust, it's very crispy and chewy. And it's charred, not burnt, but charred uh, with a a layer. I like that disclaimer. Yeah. And then on top is a layer of crushed tomato that's cooked with the pie in brick ovens. Traditionally, these would have been a coal fired oven. There's different variations in New Haven style, but that's the tradition. Anything else on top of that is is extra. You know, that's why you pay more for mozzarella. Yeah, it's like it's like the flame licked pizza, right? It's it's gently kissed by the fire. That's all. Absolutely. That, that's that's what the char marks mean. Yeah, actually, right? Lyle Lovett says it the best. They're like all the parts are like playing off each other, like they're like in some sort of passionate romance with each other. And the best pizzas should really taste like one thing working together. I just think it's amazing you have a movie made that you have Lyle Lovett talking about pizza. I mean, check that off the bucket list of things to do in life. We have small cities in Connecticut, but all of our little areas of Connecticut have arenas and places where musicians have been able to perform and will again be able to perform. Yeah. When they come to New Haven, they all get a pizza. They get Sally's, they get Peppies, they get Modern. They literally look forward to playing in New Haven because of our of our beats. Is New Haven, is it safe to say, I mean, just we're not being homers here, is the pizza capital of the world? Can we say that? Yeah, I <laughs> and, mean, and... Barstool Sports says it. 
we've heard it from many other people that New Haven is really the, uh, the best community for pizza in America. And, you know, growing up here, I can say it. And most of us Connecticut people will point our fingers and say, oh, New Haven, that's where it's at. Yeah. So we talked a little bit ago about the big three, Sally's, Modern, and Pepe's. The pizzas are delicious. What do you think is the best way to describe how each one's different from each other? Some of the biggest differences in these pizzas that are, you might say are so closely related in style are really the, the basis of tradition of each family, uh, how they make the pizza. It's also the actual ingredients they're picking. Anything from the flour to the yeast type to the sauce brand, which is really just crushed tomatoes, the cheese type. And then it's their ovens. You know, what kind of fuel are they using? What kind of oven? Temperature. How long do they cook it? How long do they proof the dough? All these things end up making a huge difference in what you get on your plate or on your tray in New Haven. For me, when I take a bite of a white clam pie at Pepe's, all I do is think about it for the next week and want to go get another one. Number one rated in the country every year. There's a reason why. Pizza makers have gone from one pizza establishment to the other and live to tell the day. Oh, the pizza places all get along, generally speaking. I mean, any pizza place of clout has no problem with another pizza place. They are not in competition. They are all there helping each other. They borrow things from each other. They see how they're doing. They're literally building a New Haven business tradition. They're building a legacy. It's not just one place. If it was one place, we would have nothing to talk about. They're also the very definition of what other parts of the country know as New Haven-style pizza, right? So this little section of Connecticut has created a language for the rest of the country, right? Because in Chicago, they've got deep dish pizza and we have New Haven style pizza. So that is quite a legacy. Every place in the country has their own style pizza. Detroit has a style of pizza, like California style pizza. How many different types can there possibly be, Colin? We're figuring that out now because the question is, if you really break it down, it's kind of like the animal kingdom. It's like you have different phylum and orders and all these different things that go down. So there's thick and there's thin. That's really two ways of describing pizza in my book. Where does New Haven fall? It's in the thin. And then you could go down from there and break down each city. You know, a place like New York City, there's five different kinds of pizzas they make. So when someone says, I grew up on New York pizza, I'm always like thick or thin. It's like what you grew up with is what you call pizza. So I don't tell anybody that their taste buds are wrong. I just say I feel sorry for them <laughs> if they didn't grow up in New Haven. <laughs> That was Colin Kaplan. Colin is the author of the book Pizza in New Haven and producer of the new documentary Pizza, A Love Story. Colin is also the co-owner of Elm City Party Bike and the culinary tour guide for Taste of New Haven. Every time I listen back to our chat with Colin, I get hungry for pizza. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Our producers are Robin Doyen-Aiken and Katie Talarski. I love pizza, too. Hey, please stick around for just a few more minutes so Robin and Katie can tell you how you can support Seasoned and everything you hear on Connecticut Public Radio. If you discovered a great takeout spot or a brewery because of one of our live shows, or maybe you were inspired by one of the local food makers you learned about on Seasoned, we hope you'll consider supporting us. Thanks for listening. We appreciate it. We really, really do appreciate that support so much. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken with Katie Talarski. We are the producers of Seasoned, and it's been our great pleasure to bring you these weekly breaks from the news this past year. If you've learned something or been inspired by the conversations you've heard with national or local food stars on Seasoned, go to our website right now and make a pledge. Visit wnpr.org donate or call one 800 584-2788 to pledge your support for this programming. Because Mother's Day is around the corner and this is the time of year we offer up a few thank you gifts moms would love, 
you'll see a super pretty spring bouquet. Plus, as Katie mentioned, uh, seasoned listeners especially will like those fancy chocolate-covered strawberries. The only thing better than fresh fruit is fresh fruit that took a bath and melted chocolate. chocolate. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> so please do call 1-800-584-2788 or go to wnpr.org slash donate and choose those strawberries as a thank you gift. We won't tell a soul if you decide to keep them for yourself and give your mom a plant. Um, that's totally up to you. Your mom will be proud of you anyway for supporting public radio because she taught you to pay for the content you consume every day. <laughs> Make your mom proud. Visit WNPR.org slash donate or call 1-800-584-2788 to pledge right now. We also have another special um, offering for a thank you item this pledge campaign, which is a partnership with the Village for Family and Children for a pledge of $15 a month. You can have twice the impact through this partnership and help feed a child in need for a week through the village's after school program. Their extended day treatment program supports children in need of therapeutic care for social, emotional, and behavioral disorders. Um, so this helps to get those students um, nutritional snacks. It's a great way to support Connecticut Public Radio and also the Village for Families and Children who have been around for so long doing such great work in the community. So again, um, so many ways for us to thank you for your pledge of support for Seasoned and for all of the programming here on Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, but we're hoping that you go now to your computer or your phone or whatever makes sense for you and make your pledge of support 1-800-584-2788. Again, that's 1-800-584-2788 or go online, see all of our thank you items at wnpr.org slash donate. Help keep this great programming on the air seasoned. All the team has been doing such great work. I'm so appreciative of Robin for all of her work. Um, again, 1-800-584-2788 or wnpr.org slash donate and thanks.